Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 175, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, New York City schools do an about-face, sending elementary students back to school and effectively canceling the hybrid model. And will educators have early access to the COVID-19 vaccine? Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, how to tackle the topic of fake news without being political. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is November 29th, 2020, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how was your Thanksgiving? Oh, it was the best rest I've had in a very long time, but I missed my family so much. Yeah, and when you say family, you mean like extended family, like people who live out of state, right? Well, yes, my parents, my siblings, my cousins, everybody, and my closest friends. Um, They all live in different states. Yeah, and, and kudos to you because you're doing what a lot of people mm-hmm. haven't been able to do. A lot of people still, you know, drove over or flew over to go visit family. And, of course, um, that is the concern, I think, of anyone in the uh, public health arena right now is kind of like what's going to be the effect of all of us traveling and seeing and commingling, uh, maybe not following the rules 100%. And will we see a spike on top of the spike that we're already experiencing in terms of COVID cases? True. And I've tried not to be salty about it. Um, I think a couple of days I, I pouted because we haven't traveled anywhere. And to be honest with you, no one has stepped foot in our home since the pandemic has hit. Wow. No visitors whatsoever. Um, you know, we go to our Friday night football games with our for our son and we still wear our mask or whatnot. But other than that, work and, you know, necessities, but not really having any type of um, social life, life or family gatherings, it, it kind of took a toll on me this holiday. I, I definitely missed family coming in town or our option. Normally we have Pollard Thanksgiving um, in Atlanta and we didn't get to do that. And so that's hard. And when you see pictures on social media where people had large, not five or six, right. <laughs> but large family gatherings, all indoors. It looked wonderful. You want to be excited and happy for them as you always are every holiday season to see pictures. But at the same time, I start thinking of numbers and the impact it will have on the community. And what's that going to mean for people like me who tried to do the right thing, um, whether we want it to or not. And now we go back to work tomorrow. And what are you know we going to walk into? And that will be the big unknown. And, and I kind of wonder, you know, will we see a spike on top of an existing spike? Like that's like, we're already seeing these cases surge. Uh, I don't think we'll really know probably for about 10 to 20 days, you know, until we kind of know what what we experienced around Thanksgiving. And by that time, we're going to be rolling right into a redo with the Christmas break. And we'll see. And that's very true. Um, About a week or so ago, I was um, reading along on Twitter as we often do. And there was a young lady who shared her story of, you know, for the past, what, six or seven months, her her family, it's been um, following this, you know, stay at home, social distance, don't have any family gatherings. And one of the grandchildren had a birthday coming up and her parents just really wanted to have a normal family gathering as they would often do um, pretty regularly. So they went ahead and they had a wonderful birthday party for one of the grandchildren. And within 10 days, 15 members of their family came down uh, with COVID. Yeah. And and you hate that. You know, you don't want it to be, I told you so, but at the same time, gosh, I mean, yeah. it's just, you just really don't want to see that happen either. I felt bad for them, um, you know, big time. I also understood the, the grandparents are older kids are growing so fast and they had missed a number of different birthdays, you know, um, and events this year. And they just wanted 
family. I mean, it's really hard when you're, when you're a part of a big family mm-hmm. and you're used to gathering all the time, as opposed to someone like me who looks forward to those breaks and holidays when you can get together um, with your family members because we all live so far apart. But, you know, no matter what, I'm sure that that, that hurt them. It made them very sad. But there's memories that they'll be able to cherish also. There's there's no doubt fatigue is setting in. I Last March, um, in uh, late March, it's my five-year-old daughter's birthday. And, you know, that was early on and we had really no birthday party. It was um, my parents and her parents showed up at our house and we hung out in the backyard all spread out. And that was her five-year-old birthday party that we had to like cancel otherwise that would have been with friends. And I never, right. I never would have um, imagined that we're going to have to be cautious by her six-year-old birthday party as well, it looks like. I mean, yep. we may not be in the clear by late March. Hopefully we are. I mean, I think I kind of- I certainly hope so. The, the word is possibly vaccinations um, all the way through uh, April. Um, might, yeah. We might see you know more enough people to where those numbers really come down. And um, speaking of vaccinations, I actually have that as one of our topics today. Some articles that are floating around out there are, are teachers going to be prioritized for vaccinations? And that is- that is being discussed. What are your thoughts there? Do you think they should and do you think they will? Um, of course, the professional mindset is absolutely we should since we are being told to have school and to teach children, um, you know, with maximum class sizes. Um, anxiety is through the roof. Um, there have been teachers to, you know, to to come down positive, to be exposed, to be near someone that was positive. And even in a few cases, definitely, um, you know, have experienced some teacher fatalities. I would hope that they would prioritize teachers. But then my question is, you know, what does that mean? Are the vaccinations free or there be um, simple arrangements in order for teachers to be able to get those vaccinations? But the even bigger question, which is on just my human side, not professional, just mom, wife, sister. Um, what if they don't want the vaccination? What if they don't want to be a part of the first, you know, round of of it? I guess my inclination is if it's good enough for doctors and nurses, then most certainly, you know, we we could never cripple the 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 health community. And if it's good enough for them and they uh, urge it and and they take it, then you, your mindset should be absolutely please make sure that teachers are next. But is that going to be a reality when you think about the number available and when you get healthcare workers out of the way, then you got to go down the line of the different essential workers. Mm-hmm. You have to think about your, you know, your ambulatory care, your firefighters, military, um, police, the police force. Where do we fall in rank and order? Yeah, th- this is all kind of what's being discussed. And from what I understand, there is a group who uh, decides this. It's like an advisory committee on immunization practices that's under the umbrella of the CDC. And they will decide like which groups to prioritize for first use and so forth. And I think they've already met once. They're meeting again, I want to say this coming Tuesday. And mm-hmm. I think by December 10th, they're supposed to have some sort of framework they're going to be announcing of saying, you know, who will get this in what order. And like you said, I mean, of course, healthcare workers and the vulnerable and, and you know, people in um, long-term care facilities right. um, absolutely should get it. But then like, where, where does, where do we go next? And I think th- there is a, a strong lobby for the K through 12 is what I'm reading. Um, they're actually trying to lobby. It looks like a lot through the governors. They're trying to get governors to be the ones to say like, we need to vaccinate our teachers. And so it's, it's kind of this push from superintendents to governors uh, into the, the powers that be. Um, and then I have to be careful in how I respond because my opinion of how that might turn out may not sound very positive. Yeah, I mean, the governors really haven't been on the same page, I guess, is kind of what you're saying across the country. So we'll have to see, no. kind of see how that shakes out. I think what we don't want to see is um, not a knock on professional sports, but we don't want to see professional athletes getting the vaccine and teachers aren't. I feel like there needs to be, you know, th- those are the type of stories that are going to frustrate people if we start Absolutely. to see, you know, those in a place of privilege um, getting the vaccine before those that really need it. Um, so it should be it's going to be, you know, one of uh, President Biden's uh, probably tough challenges in terms of how we roll this out from an optics standpoint. It could really be uh, somewhat of a hot potato over the next few months. But I'm just glad that we're even having this discussion because just a few months ago, this wasn't even a part of our conversation. 
Um, it was still doom and gloom. And, you know, when are we going to get a vaccine? And is it going to be promising? What's going to happen? We were still talking about different phases of testing. And now to even discuss two or three different vaccination options and where we fall in that ranking order and if we'll be able to get them um, is still promising. And I just hope that we all can, you know, hold on, remain positive and continue to practice some of the, you know, suggestions made by many of our medical professionals with wearing a mask and social distancing. I think that's going to really play a part in some decision making over the next few weeks when we return to school tomorrow. And in a few weeks, we see those numbers and what they will look like. It's going to impact not only um, next steps for what we'll do about school after the Christmas holidays, but then just really what impact it will make on the decision that they have to make quick rather than sooner, if you ask me, than later um, regard to classroom teachers. Yeah. And, and as you were asking or you were saying you weren't really sure if we were going to see this like roll out in parking lots or, or what. From what I understand, that is the plan. I know it may be a lot more challenging with the Pfizer vaccine due to storage reasons, but Moderna is apparently um, does have the ability to just basically be refrigerated for several days. And I think that's the one we'll probably see, you know, where you can go pick it up from a local pharmacy or maybe even, you know, through a school parking lot or something like that, where this uh, vaccination may be rolled out. So there is. But my question is, there. is that the one that's 70 percent? No, no, no. They were reliable? both they were both over 90. There was another one. I think it was. Was it AstraZeneca? I think that was a little lower. That was in the 70 yeah. percent range range. So um, and, and then, you know, of course, all of us probably have, you know, you're a little nervous about taking a vaccine and while they've done these trials and they seem to be safe it once you watch the first round 25 million people or so get it i think i'm gonna have a lot more confidence i mean not, i agree you know to once, once we see how those people react to it a much larger sample so um hopefully yeah. uh, everyone will get on board after that you first know there's round. two ways to look at it though you could say let me check out after that first round and then i'll feel better about it at the same time look at how we're living without one it's oh yeah so the stressful. alternative is so stressful yeah, yeah. Yep. And like you said, like you started off the show, I mean, it, the fatigue is setting in. It's tough not seeing your family and, mm-hmm. and sacrificing certain things. So, yeah, like, give me a shot. Let's do this. And it's almost stolen childhoods, too. I just, mm-hmm. you know, I feel for the kids. No doubt. Oh, and by the way, I should say congratulations uh, with your son. Uh, he is on the way to the state championship. Yes, we're so excited. <laughs> this Friday is going to be really cold. And so we're <laughs> looking forward to freezing and getting a win. Yeah. And they are what, 12 and 0 going into it right 12 now? 12 and 0. And I don't know if that's happened um, in the history of Oak Grove, to be honest. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is this is a big deal because this is these are the large schools. These are the 6A schools for the state. So third yeah. time in a row for them to make it to the state championship. We hope the third time. is That I charm. know is a big deal that it's a third time in a row. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Um, other topic that I kind of wanted to bring up was actually um, news that broke today. Uh, New York City, if you've been watching, they decided they were going to go back to school about two months ago. They put everyone back in school and then they pulled the plug on that about, you know, eight weeks into it and said, no, we're not going to do this. Cases are starting to spike. There was all sorts of backlash. Um, And much of the backlash from what I've read in the New York times seems to be kind of like, why are you um, being tougher on schools with the regulations than you are say on restaurants and other places and social entities, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, th- social type events. And and the mayor's always argued, well, I can make a decision on schools. Governor Cuomo makes a decision on those other things. That's kind of been the line, but I think that hasn't really satisfied the masses. Well, today, uh, mayor de Blasio said, all right, we are now sending all elementary students back to school in a, in a week or so, week or two. And we are actually not just sending them back to school. We are going to do away with the hybrid learning. Um, so there's really kind of two discussions. One, the decision to send the elementary students back and not the middle school and the high school. And the other is doing away with the hybrid learning. Are we are we learning that hybrid learning is very challenging on teachers and maybe not the best for kids. I mean, is that what you think we're hearing here? I I don't think that it's not what's best for kids. Clearly what's best for children is what we've always been doing and a lot of um behind a lot of eyes, but in reality, I think it's situational and you have to just do what's best for your area. I am gravely concerned about the decision to send that many children, of course, they're very large school districts there, Mm -hmm. um, sending that many children back to a traditional setting, and they will have to watch their numbers and they will have to make decisions based on, you know, data, no different than what we did. If you remember 
A lot of schools around our area started off traditional, large and small um, populations. And we did not. We started off with hybrid. Mm -hmm. We went an entire term that way and decided because so many other schools were traditional, it was going to impact us in regard to our attendance rating and, you know, our preparation for state testing. And we made the decision to go back traditional. Uh, Not long after we made the decision to go back traditional, many of the traditional schools around us had to make an about face and switch to hybrid because the numbers and their outbreaks was just, you know, um, difficult to deal with and not, but a few weeks after we were in traditional, unfortunately, our district too had to have a quick meeting and make a decision on whether we were going to return um, traditional or hybrid after the holidays. And we are returning hybrid tomorrow. So when I think about that large population of children uh, in New York City, Going back traditional, I understand that he had to deal with a lot of negativity, a lot of, um, you know, opinions, and he has to make his constituents happy. I think they're just going to have to respond um, to the data. And I can't say that hybrid, the hybrid model isn't what's best for children. You have to look at that in in multiple ways. One is less days of face-to-face instruction, which I don't think is best for children, but it does involve some instruction and giving schools an opportunity to keep numbers low, to keep the building disinfected and sanitized versus traditional when you have a really large population. For example, we serve 650 students. And for the last few weeks, it has been extremely stressful um, trying to give them as normal of an environment, learning environment as possible. But then here we are, the sanitizing police <laughs> going up and down the halls, pull your mask up, don't touch, social distance. It's exhausting, it's tiring, and it's extremely difficult with young people in middle school and high school because that is a very social time and age for them. Mm-hmm. So I get their decision to send elementary students back and not the secondary students. But at the same time, what I would love to know what measures and protocols they're putting in place this quickly with that about face to protect the children and to protect their teachers. I guess what I want to know, and maybe this data exists, I have not seen it. And and I'll say this, the cases in Mississippi from the first five weeks to what we had just going into the Thanksgiving break on the, just say the students alone has, has doubled, almost tripled. For Mm -hmm. example, our average for the student cases was 282 a week. And then going into the Thanksgiving break, there were 702 students that had it in the state of Mississippi. So, I mean, that just shows you that, you know, we're we're aggressively, I think, compared to many states back in school, just kind of as a generalized mm-hmm. statement. And, and we are seeing growing cases. But what I wonder is, are those growing cases amongst the older kids? Because there's so much we don't know about COVID-19. And it, sometimes it does seem like it just, for unexplained reasons, isn't spreading as much with the... I don't know, five-year-olds all the way to I don't know, about 10, 11 years old. I mean, do you know or have you seen any data saying that in this younger group, it's spreading a lot? Or I have not, not seen any concrete data, but I want you to just remember that one word, asymptomatic. This is true. I mean, so we we don't know if the, if they're spreading it too, and and that's kind of like why the the research is probably so hard to you know kind of just mm-hmm. make it black and white and say this is happening, this is not, but. Mm-hmm. I we also have to go back to the the question about whether schools across America are honestly and regularly reporting. Yeah, this is true. And so the data may be flawed from the start, which kind of makes it hard to know anything. Um, I guess as a parent, I like the idea of those elementary kids being there five days a week, if possible. I mean, Mm -hmm. it just, I worry about, you know, those kids falling way behind where I feel like middle school and high school students may have a better fighting chance in in those other models. Cognitively speaking, um, that's just really the only way you're going to teach young children to read and to improve their reading ability is face-to-face. Seeing the placement of the tongue and the shape of the mouth and hearing the sounds you know, directly while looking at your teacher's mouth plays a huge role um, in that developmental uh, segment. But not only that, we go back to their social emotional support with the, you know, face-to-face social interactions, um, structure, regular routines, all of that impacting, um, you know, their emotional health. But I think that same, same thing can be said for middle school and high schoolers. When we were hybrid out the gate, um, 
we heard from a lot of our middle schoolers about how they miss school and they miss their friends and they just miss so many things. And then when they got back to school, they were extremely happy. But with the restraints, it made middle school not as fun. You know, so there's just so many positives and negatives that you could sit here and and toss back and forth. At the end of the day, I have to go back again and say that I do believe that leaders are trying to do what they think um, is best for for our children. Mm -hmm. And we have to be supportive and do all of our best. I think the biggest problem really lies outside of schools, what we're doing in our spare time, what we're doing with our weekends, what we're doing with our time off. We talked about how the numbers jumped at the end of October and beginning of November. What did we do on our fall breaks? (laughs) Where did we go? Yeah, Right. Fair questions. And and also at the end of the day, I think it has to be said that there really are not a whole lot of good answers. And so seeing, you know, districts kind of flail and do about faces or whatever I may call it, you can't really blame anybody. I think everyone's doing no. the best they can. And and the fatigue, I mean, it, it's got to be so bad. I mean, it has Listen, to wear on educators around the country. Bold decisions are happening, and it's all because of the pandemic. And if we didn't have a pandemic in place, we would be just terrified to make such bold and different decisions. I mean, right now, I'm not sure if you're aware that many superintendents are actually looking at the year-round model for Mm -hmm. instruction. And this all came about because of the pandemic being in place and trying to put in a better model for teachers and students. But year-round learning has been around forever. But we're just now really being okay with bringing it up. We actually have a couple of districts in our state that have adopted it and going to try it out. Um, And so now everybody wants to talk about it. So there's a lot of positives that we could also, you know, pull out of dealing with the pandemic. Yeah, you're absolutely right about the Ural thing. I have heard that and actually heard that um, our our children may be affected by that. And they're talking about possibly, you know, going on a a, some type of model like that and where you have a two week Thanksgiving break. And, you know, I think one thing I did like and I I hate to get off topic because I'm about to wrap, but I heard that they may do like a two week Thanksgiving break, but they may take one of those two weeks weeks and allow it for extra tutoring if needed. Um, and also like, and that's, extra that's a different model. Um, the one that's the most common is literally attending um, six weeks and then having a three week intercession. And during the three weeks offering um, interventions and extra academic support for students that need it. And mm-hmm. that basically we would start school somewhere around July 15th and then school would end somewhere around June the 8th. You'd still get four to five weeks of a summer vacation, but it would just be so different. And I'm interested to see um, if superintendents, you know, uh, provide surveys for their teachers to get their input. I'm really interested to see the results of that data. Would you like a year round model? You know, we literally just had that survey offered to us by our superintendent um, before we went on Thanksgiving break. And I had to mull over it all day before I could respond. Honestly, I did like that within the survey. We were asked, what were the positives of traditional um, models? What were the negatives? And what did we think positives of a year-round model? And what did we think the negatives might be? And, you know, it really took a lot of deep thinking for me. And as a 12-month employee, it would not impact my life, you know, so it's a little bit different. However, as a principal speaking, the preparation time and the time in between school years, is going to really make it tough for administrators, but you don't want to think about self. You want to think about how that would impact teachers. Would it give them, you know, a breath of fresh air to regroup, to plan, to collaborate, to do whatever they needed to do. But what if our school district selects the year round model and the districts around us do not, what do you do with employee children? Right. And I think that is why some of these districts are looking at the the possibility of these extra things during those times that yeah. there's, quote unquote, a vacation. Um, so I just think there's going to have to be some collaboration with superintendents, right. which is something you don't normally do. You focus on your school community and you make decisions, you know, for your school community. Perhaps this is going to now cause... Uh, superintendents to be a little bit more aligned in decision making. Yeah. Well, a very good point. Big, bold decisions are being made as a result, as a side effect, if you will, of COVID-19. I like that perspective, Christina. Are you ready for today's uh, bright idea? Yes. 
Our guest in today's Bright Ideas segment is here to give us tips on how educators can help students understand and identify media bias. Jacqueline Whiting spent over 20 years teaching high school social studies, but now she's her school's librarian media specialist. She's also the co-author of News Literacy, The Keys to Combating Fake News. Jackie, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. Uh, I'm so excited to have you here because this is an issue that when I was running a newsroom, I would even hire people who would study journalism in college. So they've already been through high school. They've already been through college. And it still concerned me at times of their their grasp of what I would call media literacy or news literacy or, or media bias even and how to identify those things. So it sounds to me like you have been really focused on educating students on how to work through all of this, right? Yeah, definitely. It actually began as my Google Innovator project when I was accepted into the Google Innovator Academy. It was right after the uh, Shegg report had been released. The Stanford History Education Group did their examination of students in middle school, high school, and college uh, trying to assess their civic online reasoning is how Shegg referred to it. And what they found going into schools was that their instrument was not effective. And they actually had to go back to the university drawing board and redesign the tasks that they were asking students to do because they were so unprepared to to tackle those tasks. And they went back into schools, readministered the new assessment and came back out and in a word said, the situation that we're in right now is pretty bleak. And bleak is the word that they chose. Um, And that was about three years ago. And that was really a call to action, uh, certainly to people in the library media world. And I think it's it's filtered out from there to people in in all parts of of education. The media literacy of faculty is is as important as the media literacy of our students. And so in trying to tackle this problem with students, I found that I'm having kind of preemptive conversations with with colleagues and running workshops for other teachers so they feel a sense of preparedness and some comfort in in addressing this in their classrooms. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point. And that's exactly why we're doing this episode. Cause as you're saying, maybe some teachers out there, you know, they've I don't want to say been left behind, but you just things have changed a lot over the past 20 years or just really the invention of the internet and and how news is delivered to us and where it's coming from and how it looks kind of gets a little blurry at times. And and what I'd like to do is just kind of go through and, and maybe identify some some tricks on, you know, things that teachers and students should be looking for when they're pulling sources from different news sources uh, across the internet. Um, so sure. you can help me with that, right? Absolutely. So let's first kind of just go through and try to identify some things that are happening in the media that that people should look out for. And um, the first one I'm going to start with is native advertising. Can you explain to listeners what that is and what that looks like? Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, native advertising by another name is sponsored content. And when I present students with an example of native advertising and they're not really sure what it is that they're looking at, and if I say to them, what if I call it sponsored content? Does that mean anything to you? And now the the sports fans say, oh yeah, sponsorship. Somebody's paying for it to be here. And that's immediately followed by a, whoa, I'm looking at a news site. You don't pay to put your story in front of people. And so that's when we start to unpack it and say, okay, so sponsored means somebody's paying for it to be here. Originally, I called it native advertising. So what is it that we're looking at? And eventually, students will come around to, well, I'm looking at an ad. Somebody's trying to sell me something, sell me a product, sell me an idea, sell me a way of life. And it doesn't look like an ad. It looks like news. And that is really the first kind of stop in their tracks. Things aren't always what they appear to be. And I need to bring a much more critical eye to some of the things that I am taking for granted when I come across them. Yeah. And I'm going to give an example of one that's, you know, not necessarily news. And and maybe you can throw an example out uh, to the listeners as well. But you could have um, a news station be willing to take money from, say, a restaurant and say, these are the top five burgers in the Southeast. And, mm-hmm. and 
maybe all five, maybe one of the five, but they could be paying to have that article written, or they may have even written it themselves and handed it over to the news agency. And essentially it is native advertising. I mean, is there anything that jumps out in your mind that also might look like that? Yeah, there's a, there's a great one I use with students. Um, I show them a, a screenshot from a media agency, a media website, and I usually do it when the students are getting ready to do a kind of a personal interest research project. And students will do a lot of things having to do with tech or, um, you know, girls in STEM and things like that. And the, the sponsored content is actually presented as a headline called The Real Reason Women Don't Go Into Tech. And I show them that and someone will always say, oh my gosh, that's the perfect source for what I'm writing about until they click on it and see that this thing that's presenting itself as a news story actually isn't a news story at all. Um, But you have to be paying close attention to, to figure that out, right? Somebody's paying for access to you. It's really closely related to clickbait, which is something they love because you know, that's amusing and that's engaging and entertaining, but they're, you know, they're cousins. And I can say from experience, I've seen local um, news agencies five years ago, they were uncomfortable with the idea of, of taking money from somebody and writing something that looks like a news article. And they, they didn't even like the idea of having something at the very top or the bottom saying this is, you know, native advertising or sponsored content or so forth. Mm -hmm. But as we've gone along over the past five years or so, that bar has been lowered as, as these organizations, local news companies, uh, news, newspaper companies realize that they may need to find new ways to get money because people aren't watching TV anymore. People aren't getting a newspaper anymore. They, they're more willing to do this. I mean, would you agree? Oh, absolutely. There's definitely a revenue stream element to it. Um, the more these different kinds of publications are, are closing up shop or reducing their, reducing their workforce because they, they you know, can't meet their, their bottom line anymore, that's certainly one element of it. I think another element of it is, is also kind of the race for the story and the space to fill in a 24-7 news cycle where news is streaming you know, into our pockets, onto our person, wherever we go. There's there's not that much newsworthy stuff going on, right? right? And so if you can't find it, you can buy it. Do you think um, your students or, or any students, you know, are aware of how many times a day they're impacted by what, I, I don't know if you, you use the same term, but I call them influencers, people on Instagram or Facebook who are pushing some product or an idea? So it's interesting. I would say that by and large, many of my students on the surface feel immune to that. Um, I know better. I know what I'm looking at. I know when somebody's pushing something on me. And in a more vulnerable moment, when asked about kind of the things that they like and the things that they don't like about social media, eventually some students will come around to, to a really powerful admission, which is I waste a lot of money because I'm on social media and I impulse buy things. Um, and then they start to, to realize that so much of, of what they say during the day and, and what they choose to share in their face-to-face conversations with people is all being derived from this, these, as you're saying, social media influencers. You know, I'm, I'm always proud of myself when I have an NPR driveway moment and I just can't turn off the car because I have to keep listening to this story. And it's not a, it's not a, sh- a short leap to, to get to those social media influencers and how they kind of creep into our thought patterns and our speech patterns and our shopping patterns. And speaking of patterns, what I think we see a lot of are um, people create their own filter bubbles. Kind of explain that a little bit. Oh, definitely. Um, I always say to my students that you you have to know how the algorithms of search are influenced by what you click on. And I do an example with students where um, I tell them as as generically and and unbiased as possible about Alex Jones being removed from social media platforms. And I ask them to write a headline for a news story about 
Alex Jones being removed from different social media platforms. And so they have a little fun with it and they try to write some pretty scandalous headlines and some left-leaning and right-leaning headlines and things like that. And then I show them real headlines and ask them to kind of unpack a headline. If a headline says, Alex Jones finally removed from Twitter, I mean, you can hear in how I've said it that I emphasized the word finally. Mm -hmm. There's so much that's potent in that headline, implying that this should have happened a long time ago, which is really different than a headline that says, Twitter blacklists Alex Jones, where Alex Jones has now become the victim victim in the story. And I tried to show them the more you click on just one of these headlines, the more you're telling all those search algorithms what to send your way and what you're not so much interested in seeing. So much so that if I go to my my Google News feed on my phone, um, the when I launch it, the first thing I see are the stories that have been curated for me. And I have to make a conscious choice to flip into the headlines mode to see what other people are looking at as well. And so I said to to my students that, you know, it's really incumbent upon them to click on multiple versions of stories on the same topic, the same issue, the same event, so that they tell those search algorithms, you need to send me a cross-section of points of view, or I'm not an informed person. As you inform students and teachers about this, who do you think's more surprised that all this is happening? Oh, I think the teachers are... Um, their teachers seem to be more surprised that there's something that you can do about it. Students take it for granted. I say filter bubble and they say, well, what's that? And I can be half a sentence into a definition and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that. We know that. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, okay, knowing that is part of the solution to the problem what do you do about it? Students are much more resigned to do nothing about it. And I think adults are more interested in trying to figure out how to minimize the, the influence of filter bubbles on what they know and on their points of view. As a, a solution, do you ever recommend, um, say, if a student was researching something to actually research it in, I guess, what you would call like an incognito mode on Google Chrome um, to where you're not really being tracked and it doesn't really know who you are? Does that help? So I've I've recommended to students that they try incognito mode. Um, I've also recommended to students that they do their initial searching um, in their school's uh, library database if they're fortunate to have a, a school that has some robust databases where they can see multiple perspectives within the database without the the influence of the browser. Um, And then the other thing that I recommend, one of my absolute favorite news um, aggregators is AllSides. Um, allsides AllSides.com triangulates the stories that it presents. They have a very transparent tool for how they evaluate the biases of the, the people that work for them, the people who sit on their board. And it's a really transparent tool for how they try to examine bias within a news source. So that has been a really valuable way for students to see right in front of their face when they look at the screen. There is so many different ways to see this story than the way that I might be inclined to think about it myself. Um, And I I find all sides is something where if you just make that kind of a a go-to place to to broaden your thinking, then you don't have to be as concerned about what your browser is doing to you because you're keeping the importance of that triangulation in the front of your brain. So even when your browser is playing with you, you, you are conscious about it and purposefully trying to do something about it. That's a really good resource. I've not heard of that. And, and I really appreciate you uh, sharing that one with us, which kind of leads me to my next question, which is how do you teach students to identify who owns each media conglomerate and how that might influence the story that you're reading? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good, good question. That is probably the point of how media has changed that students are least convinced is a problem. And 
then I show them that viral video that I'm sure, Nick, that you saw that uh, was circulating about a year and a half ago, a year ago, uh, with the Sinclair Media Group and the, the oh, must I'm, I'm very familiar with it. Yes, yes, I have a lot of friends who work for Sinclair, to be honest. Yeah, so yeah. so showing showing that to students and pausing it once the screen is full of all of these different local newscasters and just having the students observe what's the logo behind each of these people and having them say, well, that's NBC and that's Fox and that's CBS. And then say, and all of these people are saying the exact same thing. And if I had said to you, well, this person works for this network, what do you think they might be saying about the issue of media transparency and the reliability of their network versus this person who works for a different network? And then they start to see, okay, if this is being passed down from on high and people are reading this under direction, how do I really know when someone is speaking to me authentically? Um, that, that piece really does help them understand the importance of, of ownership and understanding ownership, sponsorship, who's paying for something to be published, who's, if, if you're the publisher of something or the author of a particular article, on whose board do you sit? Who's signing your paycheck? Like, what is the, what is the money that's behind the information? Because it matters. Uh, I, I'm going to try to bring any listener up to speed on the Sinclair thing who maybe isn't familiar with that. And sure. I don't, even, I don't even remember the topic that that was being pushed down from the top. And, and it may not even be relevant. The point was that a topic was being pushed down from the top. And I think they asked all it was either news directors or general managers to read this editorial piece on air mm -hmm. as if it was their own. And it turns out that you had all these affiliates, which I don't remember if it was 20, 30, 40, 50 or more, um, mm -hmm. reading the exact same editorial piece, which was pushed down from the, the higher ups. And, and right. I remember, um, I'll give a backstory, I won't use names, but I have a close friend who is an assistant news director at one of those Sinclair stations. And she was embarrassed. And mm -hmm. um, she was infuriated uh, that, that that happened. And she there was nothing she could do about it because she needs to feed her family and she is under a three year contract with them. And, right. and so that's what's happening. Like these, you would think that maybe like these journalists would step up and do something about it, but they have contracts and, and need to feed their family and there's nothing they can really do about it other than get in line and continue to read those messages. What say you about all that? Yeah. And the irony of that is that that particular must read that was compiled into that video that went viral was all about the the fidelity with which they report the news. And in this era of fake news, I'm the person you can trust. We're the people you can trust. Mm. We report with with fidelity. So, you know, the irony ironic, in that one yeah. was was really, really thick. And and these local level news broadcasters are really put, as you said, they're put in a really tough place that, you know, their, their job, their mortgage, the, the food on the table for their families versus this thing that they're being told to, to say. And I have no reason to doubt that any of those people believe what they say. They're, they've gone into journalism for a reason. Of course, they are trying to report with integrity. And yet the flip side is you're saying it because someone's telling you to say it and their motives for telling you to say it may be disingenuous. Mm -hmm. And and that's where it becomes really complicated. It, it really does. And so if a, a student is working on, let's say, a, a research paper and they're citing um, you know, news articles or whatever they find on the internet, I mean, should teachers be, you know, making sure that they are at least, like you said, getting all sides uh, in that regard? And how do you do that? Yeah, and that's really challenging when you're working with students who are caught in this trap of bias confirmation. They have an opinion, they have a point of view, and they enter research with this notion that, well, I know what I'm going to say, I know what I'm going to argue, or I know what I'm going to prove. And so they enter the inquiry process, not really looking to understand an issue, but just looking to confirm that what they know is true. And then they're inclined to dismiss things that are contrary to, to their preformed belief. And that, I think, is, is a big challenge with 
with students being able to find the media that will say to them what they want to say. And I think that that has a, a kind of a close relationship to how we live our online lives, that we live in a filter bubble or we live in an echo chamber where, you know, we say something and it gets liked and, and reposted. And we live in this world where we can fool ourselves into believing, well, people, people believe me, people agree with me. I must be right. If you disagree with me, there aren't a lot of you and therefore you're wrong. So these echo chambers and these filter bubbles have removed our ability to even understand how to disagree with someone, how to partially disagree with someone and find common ground in other areas. And to me, that's the challenge. It's not to take the student who's on this kind of confirmation bias crash course with the truth Mm. and say, no, you're wrong. You need to see it from this point of view. It's if you see it from the point of view, you see it from, why would somebody see it from a different point of view? What are the experiences that person has had that inclines them to their perspective on this issue? Can you find common ground between you and that person in your life experience, if not in your understanding of this issue? And when you can start to build that common ground, you can start to then say, now we can open the road for having a wider point of view on an, on an issue that's not black and white. There are no black and white issues. Everything is gray if you let yourself see it. Jackie, I'm going to ask you to help help all educators out there with a, with a tough question, and you may have a great answer. Or I don't I don't know how you, you get through this, but I'll try. You, you, we've got a a president who you know often um, refers to the fake news, and, and in times he's referring to the New York Times, Washington Post, mm-hmm. what many people would call institutions um, here uh, in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, how do you have that discussion with your students without? being political? You know, is there a way to have, have that talk? So lots of educators are afraid of having that talk. And I understand why they're afraid of having that talk. I begin every conversation about media literacy by saying, while we are in the room together, we are not going to use the term fake news. In fact, I will feel successful as an educator if I can remove that term from your vocabulary. Because when that term is invoked, it tends to be invoked with the intention of shutting down dialogue. And to me, media is in the business of informing us so we can have productive dialogue. So I ask students to think about three things. Information is what's happening. Misinformation is when someone tries to convey to you what's happening and they make a mistake unintentionally. And you know the mistake was unintentional when they come back and they print a retraction or a clarification to correct the error. And then the third thing that I want want them to think about is disinformation. And disinformation is when someone tries to convey incorrect information to you for their own personal gain. And you may not understand what the gain is, but they are invested in you not understanding information. And when we start to talk about information, misinformation, and disinformation, now we start to have a quality conversation about how we understand the world. And we can start to talk differently about the choices that journalists are making when they choose to print or not print something, when they choose, when they end up uh, printing a retraction to a story, when they learn new information. I don't know if that helps people deal with our current political climate. I tend to say the climate is what the climate is. We have to learn how to exist in it productively. So I won't use that term because that term is not productive. And I think you answered that very eloquently. And that, that's a tough thing to discussion to have. And I think, you're, like you said, you started off, a lot of educators are afraid to have that conversation because they don't want to get the call from, you know, a parent or they don't want the parent to call their mm-hmm. boss and so forth. And I think it's something, you know, educators really need to figure out how to navigate. Absolutely. Um, So I think you and I might be biased on this, but how important is it for students to be learning this? I mean, like, is should it be like, you know, math, English, 
media literacy, you know, or like, where does it rank for you in terms of importance that we're educating students about this? I, I, I think it's absolutely vital. And I think that math is information literacy. English is information literacy. Science is information literacy. I don't think there's a discipline teacher out there who can be working with students today, wrestling with real world problems, absent media literacy education. Um, we are educators working now in a world where students don't have to look to us for the content. The content is everywhere. Students are looking for to us for the tools and the strategies and the practice and the guidance making meaning of the content. That is our role now. And I think that media literacy just has to absolutely infuse everything that, that teachers are doing. Um, and teachers are already doing a lot. So my role as a library media specialist really is supporting classroom teachers who want to bring in a range of media and a range of points of view into the classroom and entertain the media and the points of view students are bringing into the classroom in a way that builds understanding and, and fosters dialogue. Uh, well, I think that you and, and all library media specialists are a, a vital part of education today. And I'm, I'm so glad when I was in school, a librarian was totally different. You know, it was a different, it was, yes. you know, teaching you how to navigate was it the Dewey Decimal System. And, and now it, this is, I don't know, I don't want to say more worthy, but it, it's just so crucial to where we are today and, and how to get through um, understanding, I guess, the real world, really. Absolutely. And it's a, I think it's a travesty, the number of school districts across the country, even across the state of Connecticut, where I live, where library media positions are being eliminated from schools as unnecessary. And if anything, we're, we're more necessary than we've ever been. I agree 100%. Um, so, and I didn't really get to get a whole lot of information or share a whole lot of information with our listeners. So yeah, you are in Connecticut. Do you mind sharing the school that you're, you're working at? Not at all. I work for Wilton High school, Wilton Public Schools. And what's a good way for people if they want to keep up with what you do? I think you, you blog about some of this as well, right? I do. I blog about this, uh, jwbeyondthestacks.blogspot.com. And I tweet pretty regularly, rather frequently, at M-S-J-W-H-I-T-I-N-G, at Ms. J. Whiting. Yeah, you are a good tweeter. I've been uh, kind of keeping an eye on your Twitter feed and, and educators in general are pretty great tweeters. I think it's a great community out there. So I know um, a lot of people will love to probably track you down on there. Awesome. Um, again, uh, Jackie Whiting, we appreciate you taking the time to, to kind of enlighten us. I feel like we could probably do a whole nother episode on this. There's so much more I could probably ask you, but I think it's a good start. Well, you um, know how to get in touch with me. I'll come back anytime. This is a wonderful and really important conversation. Thank you so much. Are you ready for our pop quiz? I am. Let's go. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, media literacy. <laughs> All right. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Ooh. Can I be political? Sure. Yeah. Sex ed. Okay. And I guess <laughs> I guess it is being taught in some places and not others. And that in might some be the places problem, and right? not others. It needs to be comprehensively taught. And, and I'll, I'll add to that. Um, and also personal finance. What does every child deserve? Oh, a champion. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Implicit bias. What's the best gift to give an educator? Well, the cheesy answer is a Starbucks gift card, but the real answer is your trust. Which teacher changed your life? Linda Miller, my high school math teacher for three years, because when I first met her, I thought she was the worst teacher I would ever have in my life. And by the time I'd had her for the second time, I realized that nobody in the world cared about me more than my parents really, than Linda really Miller good. did. And last question, pen or pencil? Sharpie. All right. Again, uh, Jackie Whiting, we appreciate you taking the time. And uh, yeah, definitely stay in touch with the show. We'd love to have you back on in the future. Wonderful. I loved it, Nick. Thank you. That 
that's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.